Hey everybody, welcome to Cinemust, the podcast where we debate the musty status of the films included in the book A Thousand and One Movies You Must See Before You Die, and listeners decide if they should be included on the list of essential cinema. I'm obnoxious station master Mike Emmel, and I'm very happy to welcome back my co-host for this episode. You all know him as the host of the Best Picture cast. He is also the host of our episode on Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. He is the man who wouldn't dream of serving brandy before hours. It's Kieran B. Kieran, welcome back. Mike, thank you for having me. Super excited to be a, a part of this here today and uh, tackle uh, tackle a, a David Lean classic here. Yeah, our first David Lean, which I, I thank you for picking. It's embarrassing to me, 87 episodes in. It's uh, taking us this long, but you better late than never, right? Absolutely. Best picture cast, Steve. There's a nice connection here. Aren't you working on a lean episode yourself here coming up? Absolutely. We have uh, February 1st will be our uh, second anniversary as a podcast. So we Congrats. like to do a, a special show. Thank you very much. Yeah, it's uh, been, been quite the journey, but we like to do a anniversary episode. So we're going to have our first five-man episode with five co-hosts on there. Oof. And we're doing uh, quite the epic. Yeah, it'll be, da- it'll be our first David Lean that we're covering, and that will be Bridge on the River Kwai. So it should be should be interesting. So excited for it. That's, that's a favorite of mine. And def- if anybody has the screen time to be able to fit five guys into an episode, it's a David Lean movie. So I think you'll be all right. What uh, what else is going on there? I, I mean, I know the name itself is a, maybe a little self-explanatory, but in case any listeners aren't familiar with your show, what's what's the skinny? What's the rundown on it? Sure. So we deep dive each Best Picture winner in long form. So we really we get in there and talk everything there is about it, with the history of it, the characters, what we see on screen, the themes, everything in there. Have different co-hosts every week. It's a bit of a roundtable situation. And we bounce around with Best Picture winners. So one week we're doing one from the 40s, and next week we're doing one from the 2010s. And we keep it mixed up pretty well. So each season is 15 movies. The end of the season, we rank them. So we're now, we will have just released our top 30 rankings. So it's, we took our first two seasons and we mished them together and we, we ranked all 30 of them here for this. So it's the first 30 movies we've covered and it's four of us. And we have a whole lot of uh, screaming and yelling at each other as we, <laughs> as we debate through those, through those movies. Now, last time you were on the show, I, I kind of made you cheat. I, you gave me like what was in first place for you and what was in last place. And I feel like that I maybe spoiled the episode here. So I wonder to entice viewers, but not give away, you know, the, the great finale. What's middle of the pack for you? What's sitting right there at the 15 spot? Yeah. So right in the middle, there is one that we've kind of joked is when this is all said and done, it's destined to be at the middle because uh, for every person that says it's a great best picture winner, there's another one that says it's a terrible best picture winner. And that would be Rain Man. So uh, Rain Man, the uh, 1989 winner or the 1988 winner. Sorry. Yeah. Yeah. So that's, it seems to be kind of a divisive one. There's people who, who it, it, it plays to their heartstrings. There's others who roll their eyes at it. And uh, for me, it is it is smacking. It's number sixteen out of the thirty for me. So okay. and uh, and just as I said, it we have I think two guys who have it ahead of me and two guys who have it behind me. So it seems to be that that constant tug of war. You can you can add me to the guys who would have it behind you. I'm not a Rain Man fan. <laughs> okay. Yes, and I get it. Um, Look forward to the day we can talk about it. An- another one that just was a mega tug of war that we had. Some people had it on the very high end, others on the very low end. Was uh, 2014's Birdman. You know, there's mm-hmm. some among us who just absolutely love it. Others that don't really care for it. So um, that was another big, yeah. uh, big debate in, among the whole thing. I'll go. I'll go high end on Birdman. It's a pretentious movie, but it's a movie about pretension. So I, I'll be with it. You know, it's uh, 
on Cinemus, we talked about how much I love Boyhood, so I've never quite forgiven Birdman for stealing Boyhood's Oscar, but I'll go high end mm. on that one. Cool. Um, yes, this is a, I mean, I'm already chipping in. Like, this is a great game to play along at home. So I highly recommend everybody go check out this episode. You know, get get your own list. Like, find the 30 movies that these guys have done. Make your own list. See how yours stacks up. It's actually a pretty fun game to play as uh, you listen along. For anybody who doesn't know about the show, Kieran, where can they find you guys? Sure, we're at Best Picture Cast on any of the social medias. You can find us on any of the streaming devices. That's Best Picture Cast, three words. Uh, just as it sounds, and uh, we're we're pretty easy to find like that. We're pretty interactive on all those uh, platforms: Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you find us. We're uh, we're we're always ready to interact with people. We have little polls. We have all sorts of stuff going on. So come check us out. Yeah, we have that in common. I also highly recommend everybody follow them on social media because before you guys record an episode, you throw it out there for any questions uh, any listener wants answered about the particular movie you guys are covering which i think is always fun you give some screen or you give some airtime to those responses and uh it really helps a fan feel involved so i I appreciate that man you're on a great show thanks a lot thanks a lot and the interaction really always uh powers it for us i know you feel the same here with uh at cinemas i mean absolutely i mean uh to to segue into it really glad to have everybody here on this show because the fleeting passion that we're asking all of you to pursue is you're helping us decide which films truly deserve a spot on the list of essential movie so to determine if tonight's film is going to earn a place on that list, it is up to all you guys to cast your votes on our polls we run on our social media pages. And we are on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us on any of those simply by searching for Cinemus. And there's where you're going to cast your vote on the must-see status of tonight's movie. And uh, to get into some housekeeping here, while you guys are making sure you're following us and Best Picture Podcast on whichever of those platforms you prefer, I want to give you the rundown of how you're going to cast your vote this Friday. Every movie we talk about on Cinemus gets voted into one of three categories. At the top tier are the Cinemus. These are movies we recommend to absolutely everybody. At least one point in somebody's life have to see this movie. In the middle are the Cinetrust. These are movies that are probably pretty good. You probably recommend them to some people, but not quite everybody. And then bottom tier are the Cinebus, which movies that might be bad, they might be good, but you don't recommend anybody see them. There's just better uses of people's time. So tonight, Kieran and I are going to vote a film into one of those three categories. We'll explain why, but ultimately, you all are the ones who are going to decide this Friday on Twitter, on Facebook, on Instagram, where is this movie going to land officially? Which, Kieran, you've tipped it off. I I keep being very vague here, but um, you picked Brief Encounter, and I wanted you to really quick take a moment um, to explain why, why did you land on Brief Encounter when I said, Kieran, Willy Wonka was such a fun episode. I want to have you back. What movie do you want to talk about? Yeah, sure. So, um, you know, I, I, you gave me a list of, uh, of directors that you haven't covered yet, uh, big time directors you haven't covered yet. I, I picked five and then I think we kind of narrowed it down from there. David Lean is one of my favorite directors of all time. And this is one by him that I had never seen. So while I love David Lean, I have not mastered the entirety of his filmography and Brief Encounter was one of those boxes I was yet to check. And I think that you uh, had said you had seen it. It'd been, it'd been a little while. So it seemed like this was like a good one for both of us to revisit. And uh, I'm looking forward to, to talking about it for sure. Me too. Just uh, again, to plug you know, your talent out in the podcast sphere um, on our, on our friend podcast, thousand and one by one, you delivered a hell of an episode on Lawrence of Arabia uh, in honor of our, our good friend, Ian Woodington, who we miss every day seriously blown away and so when you when you chose brief encounter when you said the director out of all these i want to talk about is lean and i want to do brief encounter just just knowing you delivered the lawrence of arabia episode i was like yeah yeah let's do that one this sounds like a great pick 
So let's let's dive into it. This is going to be really, really fun. So to anybody who is new to the show, for a couple of minutes here, Kieran and I, we're going to be totally spoiler free. A lot of people maybe have not heard of Brief Encounter, so we want to give you the rundown on what it's about. We will vote it into the three categories I explained, Cinema, Cinetrust, or Cinebust. We'll explain why we personally feel it belongs in that category. That's all going to be spoiler free and very general to try to sell you on the movie. We'll give you a spoiler warning when we move into deeper discussion, but hang with us to see if Brief Encounter sounds like it is up your alley. And for starters, I mean, I think it always helps just to give a quick plot summary. So Kieran, I've tasked you with it. It's totally spoiler-free, a couple sentences. How would you describe what Brief Encounter is about? A married mother of two spends her afternoons taking a local train on weekly excursions into town. Routine is disrupted, however, as she circumstantially meets a handsome doctor who has a family of his own. While the new romance begins to leave the station, treacherous tracks direct the pair as they steamroll towards inevitable passion, deceit, and potential conclusions. So, Kieran, before I throw it to you for your votes, just to explain a little more why I'm excited for uh, this show, Brief Encounter is a very famous David Lean movie, yet it is almost the antithesis of what we think about when we think about David Lean. When we think David Lean, we are thinking of our Lawrence of Arabias and Dr. Zhivago's. We're thinking big epic brief encounter says hey we've seen what david lean can do with 70 millimeter lens and vast expanses of russian tundra or the arabian desert what can he do with 35 millimeters and uh you know the relaxation room at a train station what can he do if he keeps a train actually on the tracks for a movie and uh i guess the answer to that question is what we're about to find out with our votes so first time watch on brief encounter i'm dying to hear what you thought of it what category are you putting it into Sure, absolutely. And uh, I'm not going to surprise anyone as a David Lean fan here. This one, I am going to vote comfortably as a cinema must. Excellent. So a movie everybody should see. What are your three main reasons why? Sure. I mean, and my first one is a lot of what you just touched on right there, Mike. And uh, I have it as an early entry. Yeah, an early entry in the filmography of one of the greatest directors to ever live, Sir David Lean. Lean, who's mostly famous for movies that are not such brief encounters, this uh, 86-minute little engine that could serves as either a palatable introduction to Lean or a refreshing pit stop from his sweeping epics. All right. That is ex- I'm so sorry that I stepped on everything. I was just trying to make my clever little train joke, and I wind up stealing the show from you. <laughs> no, I love it. That's a great segue, and there'll be plenty of train puns left and right, I'm sure. That's, yes, fair, fair enough. I'll real quick to get mine out of the way. I'm going to join you. Cinemust in this all the way. I recommend the movie to everybody. My three reasons I, I think this is a really deft exploration of fidelity and the social dynamics that make up what marriage is or ought to be. And with that, you know, I think Brief Encounter is categorized as a very sweeping romance a an upper class romance if you will and i kind of was grappling with that is that a turnoff is that something that not all audiences are going to get into but it leads me in my second point i say the adorableness the sheer adorableness of this relationship overcomes the the quote-unquote lofty romance that would turn off some viewers and um my third reason this is only my second time watching it but there is some cool film technique here there's a genre fusion happening here We do have a very dramatic, almost tragic romance. We've also got a lot of film noir here that's informing that. And I thought that was really cool. And I wanted to take a platform uh, to geek out about that. So I made it one of my three reasons why I recommend the movie to absolutely everybody. Very cool. Very cool. Love it. 
I mean, real quick while we're spoiler free, just because this is kind of the the part to sell the movie to people. I really liked what you said that this this movie can either act as a great first stop if you're getting into David Lean and you've never seen any of his stuff. I think most of us do come to him through the big epics. And I think most of us do come to him first through Lawrence or maybe Bridge on the River Kwai. But it still works. Like you, I like how you phrase it. It's kind of this pit stop to to go back a little bit to his roots. This is kind of the movie that puts him on the map, so to speak. And it works either way. It's a cool first movie from him. It's also cool to see, like I said, what what David Lean can do without a 70 millimeter camera. What can he do if he's kind of tied down to a few locations and he's working more on relationships rather than vistas? And it turns out what he can do a whole heck of a lot. Yeah, for sure. And, um, you know, that you know, leads into my, you know, my other two reasons here for Cinemus. And it's, um, as you said it here, to double down on the runtime, the movie does so much with so little. It's it's packing a punch in under 90 minutes, uh, thanks to exquisite set design, skillful black and white cinematography and elite direction, which is everything you just said there, too. And then finally, also just uh, a rich and poetic screenplay, just masterfully delivered from the page to the screen. So. Yeah. Um, you know, all the components you would look for in a great movie are here in this 86 minute uh, little little British movie. So uh, it's it's going to be a lot of fun to talk about. That's also another thing that really helps with the cinema to vote is you know, 86 minutes. That's a smooth sell. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm stoked to dive into it. I, I guess my last thing to say is I don't pretend to be an expert. This is my second time watching Brief Encounter. And it's been 10 years probably since I saw it for the first time. But the movie has some magnetism. It's got some pull. I totally get where its legacy comes from. But it also is this amazing entry from who you've called the, one of the one of the all-time great directors. So this is good. I, I'm so happy we have this as our first David Lean movie. I'm actually glad we're starting here and not with the big epics. We'll get to them soon enough. But this is going to be a great conversation. Before we move into spoilers, are there any other, you know, selling points, any, you know, any worms you want to put on the hook for anybody who still might be holding out? Yeah, I think just one last thing to say was, and, you know, as I said, this is one of my favorite directors. This is a movie I had not seen until this week. And it just made me so excited that there are more movies out there like this that are essential viewing that I haven't seen yet, that this movie made me excited for that. So if you haven't seen it, please go see it and, and get excited about all the other movies out there that you haven't seen. And if if any, if that tantalizes anybody who hasn't seen the movie, in terms of where you can find it, there's a couple places. If you got an HBO Max subscription, you can find it on there. If you are subscribed to the Criterion channel, you'll also find it there. And your usual uh, VOD platforms, your Prime videos, iTunes movies, whatever, you get it for four bucks. I know it's less bang for your buck than normal with such a short runtime, but with two hosts saying this is a cinema must, I think it's four bucks well spent. Absolutely. Well, man, um, we should probably get going on a deeper dive here. We've got relationships to to sift through. We've got cinematography. We've got film techniques. So if anybody has not seen Brief Encounter, Kieran and I highly recommend pause the episode now. Go check it out. It'll take you 86 minutes. You can come back here as we get a little more of a deep dive into what makes this movie essential viewing. So consider this your spoiler warning. We are now talking spoilers for Brief Encounter. We leaned down the parapet of the bridge and looked down into the water. I shivered, and Alec put his arm around me. Cold? No, not really. Happy? No, not really. I know exactly what you're going to say. That it isn't worth it. 
the furtiveness and lying outweigh the happiness we might have together? Isn't that it? Something like that. I want to ask you something, just to reassure myself. What is it? It is true for you, isn't it? This overwhelming feeling we have for each other, it's as true for you as it is for me, isn't it? Yes, it's true. All right, Kieran, to, to kind of just drive this point home that I, I feel we kind of gushed about a little bit in the spoiler-free section, but one of your points, the movie is an absolute must-see for everybody, is th- there's a David Lean movie. David Lean, you've said, is one of the greatest directors of all time. There's a ton of people that would agree with you. And you said this is, this is early work from him. It's brief work from him. That makes it a selling point. So as a Lean fan, I wondered if you had more to say, what about this component makes this a part of the reason it's essential viewing? Anyone who knows anything about David Lean's bigger films, whether it's Lawrence of Arabia or Dr. Zhivago or Bridge in the River Kwai, he is a, taking the grandiose setting aside, he's a character director. He loves developing characters within situations and doing it through screenplay and symbolism. And boy, in 86 minutes, he does so much with these characters, their plight, where they've come from, where they're headed, and what they're going through right now. And the biggest symbolism he uses it through is, is that of the train, which he loves his trains. You'll see him in all of his movies. <laughs> He's certainly, it's certainly in Bridge of the River Kwai, and Lawrence Arabia, Dr. Zhivago, all have major train scenes. I haven't seen Passage to India myself. That's another gap for me. I would wager to say there's, there's a big train scene yeah, in there's there, trains. too. Yeah, there you go. Boom. <laughs> yeah, he loves his trains. And the symbolism of the train uses in this as this romance sweeping into their lives, stopping in their lives, and then jutting away. It's just so massively done through sight, through sound, through language. You get so much of what David Lean becomes in a director just in this in this little movie. And uh, I I just had such a blast watching it, knowing every every place he'd go from here. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought that up because I was doing my like little cute, you know, we know him for 70 millimeter and vistas. And stuff. I, I almost was going to say like, you know, he puts the landscapes forward and I caught myself just in time to not say it on air because... Like you said, Lean knows how to analyze character, even in his biggest movie. You know, I would argue he's made some of the biggest movies ever. He's still focusing on character. And, um, you know, what this is, is it's not like, oh, it's not like he never did that in his big movies. It's that he's just doing it in a smaller way here, but he's showing different techniques he uses to delve into those relationships. And just as you said, whether he's out there in the desert, he's out there in India, or he's working at Pinewood Studios set, like, he knows how to use his camera. He knows how to use his lighting. He knows the right people to collaborate with on the the screenplay. And kind of one thing I was thinking about as you were talking was he's working off some good stuff here. Um, the, the movie is based off of a Noel Coward one act play. And I'm not going to pretend to be a Noel Coward expert. I'll full disclosure. Um, our, our friend, Adam St. John over at uh, below freezing and a thousand one by one, who's a theater guy shamefully messaged him this week to say like what's what's the crash course you can give me on Noel Coward what's he known for um but he's a big deal he he is a he's the English playwright you know of of this century and Lean collaborated with him a lot but I think he made a ton of great moves here adapting a stage play but not making it feel like it is like it is small. It is contained. You can see how this is adapted from a play, but it is not just a carbon copy. He's made this a cinematic experience. 
Yeah, absolutely. And isn't there some just wonderful foreshadowing in this too, is you have David Lean taking a half hour, one act play and turning it into three times its size into this movie that will be considered one of the great British films of all time. Later on in his career, he's going to take your average movie and turn it into one of the biggest movies of all time. Right. So it shows you his, his ability to expand these worlds. is just, it's so masterful. And, and just think about how much we know about these characters and the little time we spend with them, whether it's, you know, wh- whether it's Celia Johnson's character or Trevor Howard's character or her husband, we just, we have an idea of where they came from that got them here and where they're going to be going from here. And while we don't know their fates, we can, we can build them in our head as to, as to where these people are going to end up. Yeah. And he, I know that's kind of a, or I've learned, I guess I should say that's a tentative coward's playwriting is the kind of guy who had like character character biographies figured out you know before he even wrote down a, a line of dialogue he knew their whole life um and that kind of translates to coaching the actors and everything like that but no you're right it's it's a very it's a very observant film about these characters lives without seeming like it's you know really diving too deep or it's you know spoon feeding you everything um, which I, you know, I would say Lean is a, a master at pretty much. You know, if we think of things like Bridge on the River Kwai, there's a lot of dynamics between characters there that uh, we don't get afforded the option of having this voiceover narration of what's going on in their thoughts. And even though they do that in this movie, even that doesn't feel overplayed to me. That doesn't feel like this cheat code they punched in because they're making a movie and they're not doing this on the stage. They can have Laura tell us what's going on in her head. I think they pick the right moments to do that. And I mean, even this narrative device of how the story is told in flashback, I think is one of the most ingenious uses to use mm. or the most ingenious excuses to use voiceover narration because it is this conversation she's wishing she can have with her husband that she can never tell him that this potential affair has come to light because it would crush him too deeply. But the whole voiceover is this talk she wishes she could have with him. There's already this poetry to it. And it really helps that exposition go down magnificently. Yeah, for sure. And this is, this is top level usage of, of voiceover for sure. And in a, in a time, you know, in the forties where it's not as commonly used as we are used to it to today. And you're not just being told what you're seeing. You're getting her thoughts in her head literally in real time at times when she has her blabbermouth uh, companion just kind of going off and she's not really listening to her, but, but going on about what, what she had just experienced. You know, and then even a little later on, you see that same type of camera work where Trevor Howard is going into like some medical diseases and listing things and she's just kind of enraptured with with his eyes and and with with her her growing feelings for him, but the the voiceover ed just adds that element of poetry to this whole thing and makes it work within the within the short little space that they have to to make it work. The scene with um Dolly the the blabbermouth socialite and you know her just going on and on and you know in what we will learn at the end of the movie comes at just the the absolute most heartbreaking moment in this woman's life. And we get that shot, you know, it zooms in on Laura's face and you hear her head that she's like, I wish you would stop talking or I wish you were a true friend that I could trust, um, but you won't stop talking. I wish you were dead. No, I don't. That was cruel, but please shut up. <laughs> and, you know, it's it's a funny joke, but even, you know, the way, you know, what you're saying, this camera work of 
getting in close on her face, letting her show her expressions as this voiceover is going. And then that beautiful touch of lighting where the color and the light is fading out all around her and we're compressing time and space. So this entire train journey is over in a flash and she's back at home before she knows it is this really beautiful flourish. And I think at least in these opening sequences, a lot of my newfound appreciation for the movie came from how's it adapting a stage play? Because I'm very critical of movies that adapt stage plays. I think sometimes they do it a little too straight laced and it's like, this is just a play that you put a camera in front of. This is top tier I'm stealing your phrase, top tier way of adapting a stage play to use close-ups to compress time and space to, you know, adjust lighting. These, you know, these are tricks you can get away with to an extent in the theater, but you need the movies to really make them work on this level. And again, to, you know, bring us back to your point, we're keeping this like brisk and brief, like this story moves. They are not drawing this out. There are not a ton of, I, I don't know. Give me your thoughts on this. I don't feel there are a lot of capital A acting moments in this. I don't feel like there are a ton of monologues or things that, you know, stop the show and are, you know, meant to be the the true thespian moments. But maybe maybe I was just a little too over the moon about the movie. I don't know. What do you think? Did you find any of those moments in here? Yeah, I mean, listen, most of the most of the acting is done through reacting and it's it's a lot of stoic facial work and um, you know, the, the camera's working around Silly Johnson's face and, and Trevor Howard playing off her, of her reactions. And no, yeah, most of the most of the poignant monologues are done through voiceover. So we kind of get voice acting, but we don't get a ton of 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 actual on screen delivery. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's that's definitely a fair point. I do think that her best actress nomination is well earned, though. Absolutely. Because of, yeah, because it's a minimalist performance that really really hits home yeah look looking over the oscar list um yeah i'm I'm all for it getting more but of the three noms it earned i think it got the right three because it was a uh, lean for director and then celia johnson for actress and i think the screenplay was the other one right yes yeah screenplay was the other one i mean one that i immediately reacted to but then after doing a little research may have realized it might not have been eligible would have been score mm-hmm because I think yeah. they're using some previous works. Yeah, this is uh, this is a Rachmaninoff concerto for the most part. Um, yeah, for, yes, for I think me, Rachmaninoff came up. Uh, I think Rachmaninoff came up in our Willy Wonka uh, experience too. There, so he's a little, <laughs> that's <laughs> the theme. That's what we're locked into now. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, to me, like obviously, I, I I would be all down for a best picture nom sneaking in there, but other yes. than that, like I I feel they they got the noms right on this one. Yeah, I have to say real quick on the score though. Um, I was watching the movie and and listening to it, and, and that little that little beat in there, and it's it's the Rachmaninoff beat there. I'm like, you know, that's I think that's Eric Carmen's all by myself verse. Like that sounds exactly <laughs> like that. And sure enough, I'm doing the research, and it's like Eric Carmen used the used the scene from this or this <laughs> verse, and all by myself. I'm like, yeah, I still got it, still got and it. The- the layers go deeper on Brief and Can. It's a new <laughs> level of appreciation. <laughs> That's right. Um, no, I 100% agree with you on Celia Johnson. Before I made my point about the the sheer adorableness of the romance kind of making up for like the lofty romanticism, she was my second point, like straightforward. Her performance is by far my favorite. And I think, again, the movie makes this very smart decision to 
make this her story because as i understand it the play still life that the movie's based off of you said takes a half hour because it's a one act it's it's in the uh the restaurant at the train station it's five scenes and you know every scene is a new week where they're meeting at the restaurant and you know in the movie obviously very wisely we open up we see the rest of the station we go out on the town but it's not just that they you know, use more locations. It's that they make this conscious decision to say this is Laura's story. And we love Alec Harvey. I mean, he's a part of the romance, but I think it's an incredibly wise decision that we never really see his home life or we never really see him outside of their interactions with the exception of one scene, which I kind of have mixed feelings on that we'll get to later, but she crushes it. She's definitely the stronger actor. She's the one you wanted to put the focus on. And that gives the story some new breadth. And I, as we get talking, and I'll get to make my points about how the movie's making comments on fidelity and you know the value of that, social distinctions in marriage. It's 100% the right move to make it her story, to focus on those ideas through her life and not both of them. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, we, we go back to that voiceover and it's, it's easy to say, you know, all right, well, she's doing a lot of the acting through the voiceover and then you know, she just basically has to sit there and sinking those two up isn't the easiest thing in the world. And you can, when you're, you're listening to those deliveries, I mean, there is, there is real succinct emotion there in those. And it's, there's, there's such a believability to that character. And, and while it's, you know, morally a, a gray area character, I, you know, the, the, the viewer just is sucked in and, and is, is just with her on this ride for this thing. I mean, she nails it. I think there would be a temptation in this role to really overdo the expressions. I mean, you've got this camera right up in your face and you have to just hold these expressions while they're, you know, going to be looping voiceover over you. And I think the temptation would be to go really doe eyed with it or go, you know, full silent movie actor with it. And she is incredibly subdued and she still emotes. She's, you know, you can still see the wheel spinning in her head, but I think she plays the thing pitch perfect. And I, there's this quote I read that um, Robert Altman was a big fan of the movie and he'd uh, he'd gone to the movie and he didn't know anything about it and it kind of stuck with him. But he told his wife or somebody like, I'll, I'll use the vernacular of the time, so forgive me, misogynistic, but he said something like, there's this dame in it and she's not, she's not a babe or anything. She's not a starlet. And I've just been thinking about that quote. I mean, he goes on to say like, but I was transfixed by her. I love the movie. But I was just thinking about that, you know, quote, which like she wasn't a star or anything. And I, Celia Johnson, I have no idea the rest of her career. I know she's a very respected actress, but that was another thing that made me think like that is another great move this movie makes with casting is it's not mm. Cary Grant and Ingmar Berg or Ingrid Bergman, who are great. I love them in other movies, but this romance succeeds on their believability as the, you know, the class that they're in. Like we, you know, it's still fairly high class, but, you know, we kind of need to be able to relate to these people. And I don't think you get that with two superstars. Yeah, totally agree. It, it's the, the passion takes the front row is you just, you get wrapped up in the connection and the passion between these two. And it, it can take you to a moment in your, in your own life where you may have experienced the same thing. And it's just that Cary Grant, Clark Gable, it, it, it the, that 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 ruins it. It it takes you. It takes it takes that believability away from the from the everyday person watching it. Yeah, and and I will back up. I'm not going to step on my own foot because you know I appreciate you bringing up Clark Gable. 
Uh, it happened one night. We've done a show on it. It's my favorite rom-com. A movie, I think, plays a similar game. It's about at least one person in a relationship who's incredibly high class that gets us to relate with them in terms of everyday things. And uh, in that episode, we talked about that movie, kind of walks them through lower class situations to get that believability. So Clark Gable can pull it off. He needs to be, you know, in the perfect movie with Frank Capra at the helm. Um, your your average Clark Gable romance, though, I am 100% with you. Like, it doesn't work in this particular setting. I would like to, to keep it focused here to go to another point of yours and why the movie's a must-say. You say the screenplay. I think that's going to feed a lot of what we're saying about characterization, about great storytelling. So what's popping out about the screenplay to you? Are we talking structure here? Are we talking specific lines of dialogue? I mean, there's there's some of the obvious, more you know, more monologue driven paragraphs that she's saying that are just you know just really wonderfully written, and there's there's a poetry to them. But there's also little playful moments that just have such such deep kind of symbolism. If you if it, they could just move by real fast, and you're not even thinking of them, but if you if you really go into what they're saying, for instance, both of the examples where where her husband is doing the crossword puzzle and the yeah. words he's looking for. And you have him asking about the the Kate's po- the Kate's poem, and the word that is missing in the puzzle is romance, mm-hmm. and that is of course now that one's a little more on the nose, you know, where it says that's what's that's what's missing in their relationship. Mm-hmm. But then when we get to the second one, and it's the King Richard quote of "My kingdom for a horse," which is a quote that Shakespeare uses when someone is looking for something that is just irrelevant and there's the irony and then that's what they're they're willing to give up something for something that they're searching for that they don't really need mm-hmm. and here he is where she's pouring his heart out and basically almost kind of confessing to him uh, about meeting up with this guy and he's just focused on filling out the puzzle he's not he wants the word he doesn't want to listen and connect with his wife so there's like little moments like that that just that just make this screenplay so layered and so able to be dissected and and enjoyed if I may, I want to sandwich this in with my first point about the movie's comment on monogamy and fidelity and all this stuff, um, because these these scenes kind of factor into it. So my, my question to you is your honest take on Laura's marriage. Um, I actually before I spin my wheels, like let's cold response. Like what what are your thoughts on their marriage? Be as judgmental of these fictional characters relationship as you possibly can. Sure. I mean, there's obviously moments that aren't great on on either of their ends. I mean, even with him, with the all right, very nice, maybe my dinner. You know, that's, that's yeah, yeah, like yeah. he's yeah. not the, he's no he's no saint in this whole thing too. But I do think that Lean plays a lot here with monotony, routine, and just time. Everyday time ticks by, and you can see that this couple who once was very happy because it's it's said in there, I am happily married, and you can see that they have a good relationship with their kids and there was love there now the the romance end of it is no longer there so we we find that this that this couple has has grown cold or distant however you want to put it and i think that what we get in the end is where it really gets powerful and albert's kind of redeeming embrace at the end just just kind of warms the fact and shows that though though a relationship can go cold and 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 still and almost still born there, there is revival there to to go back to what she once had. Mm-hmm. Um, honest take: Do you wish she would have run off with Alec? <sighs> um, you, mm, 
you know, for the for the sake of the of the movie, no. Uh, I, I don't know. I, I think my answer for that is no, I'm, I'm happy with how things wound up there. Okay. I, I'd agree. So, so my point with this, you know, all these things these movies say is about the institution of marriage is the, the typical dramatic structure you have for this type of movie is the, the character is stuck in a terrible situation. It's, it's a loveless marriage or, you know, their spouse is abusive towards them or is cheating on them. You know, some Something is happening to make the audience actively root for like, what are you doing? Like, go with this person. They are going to treat you right. Like you, like there, there's night and day difference here. There's no, no brainer. And where like I was getting mad respect for the movie and these opening things was I'm with you. I don't think that her life is miserable or, or, you know, totally stifling. And that's not to say it's, it's idyllic and I'm not saying like, what are you doing? You're, you're messing up, you know, the perfect life because there's definitely, I like what you said, there's a routine, there's this monotony to it. But I think that there's, there's a lot of good stuff going on and there's a line to focus on the screenplay. Um, I really like the exchange they have after the kids, you know, won't go to bed because the son wants to go to the circus and the daughter wants to go to the pantomime. And so their you know, mom and dad are down there talking it out, trying to say like, can we do both? No. And, all this stuff. And when she says like, well, then what are we going to do? And he just very coyly says like, well, what we should, we'll, we'll give him a good thrashing. We'll lock them in the attic and you and I will go to the pictures by ourselves. And I was like, okay, I'm not advocating for child abuse, but it's kind of a funny line. And it's still like, Hey, date night. We'll go to the movies together. Yeah. This is sweet. This is great. And then they go into the, you know, the, the parlor together and she gets, you know, they listen to music and helps with the crossword. And there are scenes later in the movie where he is a little zoned out. But for the most part, I don't feel like he ignores her. I think that he's actually fairly involved in conversations. He's you know, paying attention like, hey, you're zoning out. You're miles away. Again, like he's not flawless. I'm not saying like how how dare she? She's cheating on like this perfect sweetheart. But I appreciated that the movie, instead of presenting this dramatical structure where it's like, oh, your home life sucks. And this person you've met is amazing. This is a no brainer. It's, it's kind of presenting this good, better, best conflicts. And, you know, the, the question is like, hey, Alec is great. And there is a lot of spontaneity here. There's a lot of chemistry here. But you do have a good thing going. And is this worth messing up? Yeah, for sure. And there's, you know, I think there's gray areas there with all of these characters. And and to to go back to Albert, too, though, I mean, there is moments where, you know, she'll, she says, hey, you know, can we all go out? Uh, to dinner one day and he goes, eh, well, why don't we make it lunch? And she goes, well, you're not available for lunch. She goes, exactly. You know, so he's, there is a general disinterest there that he's showing in her and he's, he's leaving a little bit of a gap in her life. So again, sure. that's nothing that should, should drive anyone to, to infidelity. And, and there's mm-hmm. a lack of communication in general between these two. And that's what it seems that the movie's able to repair by the end of it is that communication with you, because by the end he is listening. And by the end, she is communicating, and and maybe that this this passion that and this romance that she um, she stumbled into here, maybe that helps strengthen their relationship. Yeah, and and a moment that I love that also I think does not idolize the passion of the of the newfound romance or say like this is clearly the path to go to is is that beautiful train sequence where she is on her way back home and she has the dream the daydreams of you know, the future she and Alec might have. And it, it is this nonstop barrage of 
you know, young love. It's it's what everybody in a new relationship feels like. Oh my God, you know, we're dancing all night. We're going to Hawaii. We're skiing in the Alps. It's everything is big, grand, romantic, sweeping. And the movie doesn't explicitly state this, but I think there's this undercurrent that says like, who's to say that's not what it was like when she and Fred first got together. You know, this is passage of time, reality set in, responsibilities, children, all that stuff. You know, this this could be the cycle that's on repeat. And I think that I, I get that from the line that she kind of just says, like, you know, that is all just a dream, though. It's it's the potential of this new romance. But again, you know, is gambling on this worth messing up? You have two really nice kids at home and you clearly love them and your husband loves you. It's not a perfect relationship, but there there is just this general pull between these two lives which i think is the movie's strong point dramatically speaking because it's not just escape get out we're rooting for you it's hey what would i do like what is the right choice here do i want her to get together with alec towards the end do i feel that's a good call for the movie to end the way it does or should it end a little more i guess hollywood may i I don't even know the hollywood have had the guts to have them run off together that would that would be uh condoning adultery i guess but you know there there yeah. at least is that tension there it's not this clear-cut answer and i give the movie mad props for doing it so beautifully yeah and it just it plays with this ticking clock too throughout the whole movie i mean we see a couple zoom ins of the clock everything's about the train catching the train the train is leaving the train is leaving and this whole romance is just it, it's existing within this period of time in their lives and it's it's allure that they're just wrapped up in this allure and there's little moments of the plot where the characters are reminded of this might not be great when her son gets injured and mm-hmm. she comes home and she wasn't there for him. Oh, oh, oh no. And then the, the, the roommate walking in on them in, in the apartment, just little times of the reminding that, listen, the clock's ticking here. You got to make a decision as to what you want to do because other people are involved here too. And just again, in such a short period of time and so much is so much is accomplished. And I think a lot of that has to do with, um, with with lean's experience as a film editor and him knowing knowing when a scene begins when a scene ends how it moves because that's how he started was as an editor yeah he's he bang up job uh editing on this one again like i love i love the lean epics i lawrence doesn't drag on for me bridge on the river quiet uh Zhivago, that's a different story but um Mm. yeah again to, to go back to your first point like it is really cool to see lean can bring it with 85 minutes as much as he can bring it with 240 yeah, for sure. I mean, he's said to have uh, his directing style. He can he's almost editing while he's directing. You know, so he sees where a scene's going to end. He knows what he's going to cut, what he's not going to cut, and then he works with the film editors from there. So you can you can totally see it in a in a shorter film, which is why it was so fun for me to watch this one and see him see him work with a more compressed time period. And an element of you know, it's script writing, it's it's shooting, it's editing, but picking the right moments. I, I think you know a, a great movie romance is kind of sold by the the moments that chosen to be depicted on screen and i think this one picks a lot of the good ones and this leads into my point about the sheer adorableness of the relationship the meat cute is fantastic the the simple <laughs> grit in her eye pluck it out and then they're gone and but i just love how this thing builds slowly like that is that's a minute and a half interaction that first week and then they wait a whole other week and they bump into each other on the street they say i'm going this way i'm going this way nice weather okay maybe i'll see it later and it's not till the third week that they, you know, run into each other in the diner and they have the cute little sit down where they actually finally have this full-blooded conversation. 
but I think that's that's great buy-in for the relationship. They're they're fantastic moments to encapsulate. And and what you said about the, the ticking clock is such a good way to get the audience on board because in my experience at least that's that's part of the buzz of a, a new relationship or you know hanging out with somebody like you really like is you don't have a lot of time. You're always looking forward to that one moment. It's like okay, like next Friday has happened, but it's it's Tuesday and I'm at work. Crap, I gotta. I got to just grind through this, but you know, Friday, this is when it's happening. I get to see them again. And that is just such a great thing that they keep coming back to that Thursday is, you know, when it happens, they spend all week looking forward to what, what are we going to do next Thursday? Yeah. Oh man. And you talk about the, the facial reactions of Celia Johnson too. When, when he, she basically gets stood up for the date and she was supposed to meet him on that Thursday and he's not there. And then, okay, now all of a sudden she's annoyed by the movies and she's, this the the monotony of the train station and then she sees him and just everything is healed but her her eyes light up in her face and he's like oh i thought i'd never see you again and she's like i don't care i don't care i'm just so happy that this is you know that i wasn't actually stood up and that there was circumstance to this it, it, it's just yeah just little little moments like that really really carry this thing and how cute is that uh movie date with the uh, what is the called flames of passion the terrible right, right. Like they, they rip off I think I saw a shot from like Son of Kong in there. Like, I don't know what this movie would potentially be about, but just, yeah, it's so bad. We couldn't make it to the end of it. Like every, you know, date they go on is so cute in my eyes. Like everything about it is, you know, they go on the, the rowing thing and she's steering and he's rowing and he gets stuck on the bridge and winds up having to wade through the water. Like everything about it is just so adorable. And I, I think that helps. I help, I think it helps make it relatable. Cause you know, like I opened, this is a, this is a story about two fairly you know, I know they're middle class but they're doing well. He's a doctor, we see her house like these are these are not like the working class schmoes here. And so I think that you've got to do a lot of work to get an you know, audience buy-in on why they should care about, you know, these if they're not rich people, they're at least well off. And the moments like that do a lot for that. These are moments that I think anybody can relate to or they have this nice innocence about them. And I think that that also helps the movie because there, I think there is this kind of uh, undercurrent of sensuality to it. I mean, the whole thing is essentially about like, is this going to turn into quite a lurid affair? And we we get to that point, like you're saying, the scene with um, the other doctor's flat. Mm. But it, it was kind of surprising me thinking about it after the movie was over, like how innocently everything starts out. And I was trying to go back into it in my memory and be like, okay, at what point does this stop being, you know, we're two random strangers, we're just having lunch, or we're just going to, you know, where is the point where it's like, okay, this is something a little more than I'm just hanging out with a friend? When does this actually become a romance? I, do you have a thought on that? Like, where's the point where we're crossing the line into this is actual romantic entanglement? Yeah, I think that that's told through the escalation of, of her lies. You know, mm. and when it starts off where she's flat out honest, oh, I had a, a dinner with this man today. And, I, and, and then that turns into, oh, I went to the pictures alone, but I did have lunch with my friend first. Then she's calling up the friend and, and lying to the friend about, oh, okay, you got to tell my husband if you see him this. And then she bumps into the friend again. She goes, oh, you've met him before. You've met him before. And she's like, nah, I definitely have not. No, you, you have. You mm -hmm. have. Yeah. So when that starts, things start to spiral out of control a little bit there. And when she's now deceiving her husband, deceiving her friends, really losing a grip with, with her honesty, that's, I think, now we're getting to a point here where this is, you know, this is bordering adultery. Mm, man, that's a good read. 
I I was gonna say I think it's I think they're in the clear having the lunch, but it's when he says like, "Oh, I'm going to the movies too." Clearly lying. Like this is clearly like premeditated on his part. But it's like, yeah, <laughs> you know, they're just going to the movies. But it, you know, his you know the way he handles that line reading I me mean, is like, okay, this is no longer like, ah, oh, she's a cool lady. I'll go to a movie with her. This is this is actually like, I want her. I'm gonna go to the movies with yeah. her. Yeah. Pulls the old, I'll sit, I'll sit on the bottom, you sit up top. Yeah. Nah, the top's too expensive. All right, I'm in. You know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. smooth move, doctor. Right. Um, but, but again, you know, it's not like, um, this never gets seedy. You know, by the time they're in the boathouse and they do have what maybe is like the, the capital A acting moment of, I love you, I love you. There's no use pretending we didn't say it. Even if we hadn't said it, it would still be true. You know, that you know beautiful speech. There's legitimacy to that. This is not just, you know, summer fling. This this does seem like true blue romance. It does seem again, it does seem like there's an alternate ending here where they do run off together and it's a happy life. It doesn't seem like they get bored with each other after two years, but again, the the movie dealing in this question of what if this course of action, what would happen with this relationship I already have, or what would happen? Yeah, and there's there is something about the innocence of this film too, and the and the lack of consummating the the relationship and it's so so often in like movies from the 40s where they're cemented in that code era it kind of almost becomes eye-rolling a little bit how safe everyone's being romantically but it really the yeah. innocence really works in this movie yeah absolutely and it's it's kind of fun i was trying to think back like did this movie still was it a scandal like it's you know because at its core it is you know, it's kind of asking you to go along with something that challenges this established institution of society. You know, we, you're, you're faithful in marriage. And, um, you know, here they're asking an audience to say like, oh, you know, I do like the doctor more than I like Fred, but it, it does. It just has an innocence to it. It has like true romance, but I, I like that it kind of found this, this is kind of going into what I'm going to talk about later with how this is kind of blending film noir, that film noir is kind of a genre built on like, humanity is built on these quote unquote indecent compulsions or, you know, habits. And can we finally kind of acknowledge that they exist? You know, we'll, we'll still, you know, by the end of the movie, we'll make sure whoever, you know, was acting on these things will die, but there I'll talk more about how the style kind of gives me this reading, but story-wise here, this is, you know, an, an indecent action to be, or an indecent compulsion to be acting on yet. It makes it seem so innocent and seem so, romantic in a way that you know this is a movie you can totally see watching with your grandparents and everybody would just be loving it yeah and i have to think it was controversial at the time i know it was it was banned initially at least in ireland just for sympathizing on an adulterer mm-hmm. but uh yeah this is not this is not common of the t- of the times there's a lot of there's a lot of making you feel for the what's usually perceived as the villains here and uh it's just love the gray areas just a love love the shades of gray and for them to do that this early is when when there was not a lot of that allowed to be done this just makes makes this movie stand out even more as a classic yeah i i guess while i'm there i kind of talk more about the film noir stuff just because i mean opening opening credits already kind of were giving me film noir vibes you know we have a train departing away from us thick plumes of smoke Mm. there's it's harsh lighting sharp angles and the way the the music kicks in, which I think is still the Rachmaninoff concerto, but it starts on this like down. It, it's a piano score, but there's a lot of these low notes. It almost has this sinister tone. This is not, you know, 
this piano that's leading into like, oh, romance is in the air. Like it sounds very dour. And then storytelling structure, I mean, along with just, you know, it's you know, technically a story about two people considering committing adultery. It's, you know, how many film noirs open at the end and, you know, it, at the very point when everything is falling apart and the hero is sitting there reflecting like, oh, you know, this all started six weeks ago. Um, but, you know, we're, we're doing this with Laura and it's not, you know, the gruff insurance salesman or whatever, but it's the same basic structure. And, you know, we'll, we'll even still have some more of the harsh lighting and, you know, shot of the movie for me towards the end when um, we circle back to the last meeting that has been so rudely interrupted by Dolly. And, uh, you know, the first time we had cut to Dolly getting sugar or whatever from the counter and heard the train whistle. And we kind of assume as an audience, like she's gone to see the final train that would take him away from her forever. And then, you know, when we circle back to it here, we have that camera going in close and doing the mm. slow tilt to the Dutch angle to show the world off kilter. And then her running out to the platform and that lighting of the express train on her face. You know, these, these are dark places. This is a very film noir place to go. And I, I think how the movie kind of fuses these genres together is it will kind of use a couple of the components, I guess even technically before they've even really become established. But anyways, it, it'll take those. It won't push them all the way. You know, this is not a movie where the heroes need to be punished for you know, acts, you know, sinful acts, quote unquote, or whatever, because they don't actually, you know, act on these things. They they come to the brink of film noir, but they're they're the version of a film noir hero that pulled back at the last second and didn't have to be punished horrifically. And, you know, things went badly, but it was in a very different way. It wasn't like you got shot in the liver and you're slowly bleeding out. It was, uh, you know, it was a tragic romance. It still fits into what's been described as the women's picture. I've heard that term thrown around all week listening to special features and commentaries. This is a women's picture, you know, which is just a kind of dismissive way of calling it a romance movie, a movie with a female protagonist. But I just found it was this awesome blend and anybody who was getting drugged into this, they're like, I don't like romance movies or whatever. I felt like there was this kind of film noir undercurrent that could really be appreciated. Yeah. And I, you know, I do think the characters were punished in the end of this thing because you know, my read in this thing is that if they ran off together, they would have gone happily ever after. I think that they were, this was true love between the two of them. And by them splitting up, they were denied of that. And mm. yes, there it's a, it's, it's not like the death penalty by any stretch right. of the imagination. They both have comfortable lives and he's going to go to South Africa and be just fine. And she mm. has a, a wonderful family. And so it's, you know, it's, it's minimum sentencing here. But at the same time is that they were, that lost love is something that they will be incomplete about for the rest of, of their lives. Yeah. Um, for in a, in a, a word on the, just on the film noir end of things too, man, you brought up the lighting a little bit. Those, those scenes um, in the train station, uh, the use of shadows of people around yeah. the corners. And I have to say the director of photography, Robert Krasker was the, was the DP on Cowell reads the third man, which is yeah. one of the greatest film noir movies yeah. of all time. So he'd, he'd get rewarded for his Oscar in that one. And he does some masterful work with the Dutch angle and, and the zoom ins here on this for sure. I thought he was one of the, one of the, the strongest suits of this whole movie. Yeah. Again, to open up, I, I love those shots in the train tunnels and that, you know, it it sells what you're talking about with that ticking clock that um to to use lean's thing with trains i think this is maybe this might be a little hyperbolic cuz i'm just thinking of this but this might be the most effective a lean train has ever been for me because you know what it means every time 
it's that whistle is they're going away from each other for another week or they're going away from each other for forever. You know, there's a symbolism for what the train signified to them. And, you know, those walks up the platform as, you know, cause, and again, this is just like a relationship moment. I just personally sympathize with like dates over, like it's, it's gotta end sometime. But you just, those last couple minutes, you're just drawing, trying to draw them out, you know, walking as slowly as you can to the, the car, or the door, or, you know, whatever is going to split you two up for the next little while. I thought was so great. And, and yeah, the harsh shadows, the people around the corners, even the costuming, it was just all kind of, there's a little third man in there. I could actually see it now that you mention it. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, David Lean is going to start blowing up trains a little later on in his career. So this, yeah. he's, he's letting the trains have a little more control in this one. Um, it's He's punishing it's, them for splitting up Alec and Laura. That's right. They must that's be right. punished. That's right. Um, yeah. So, it, I mean, yeah, it's, I think that the train, the train symbolism is, is the heartbeat of this whole movie. And um, another one, one I, I, you know, we're not at double features yet. And one I considered using for my double feature but but didn't so I'll, I'll just take time to bring it up here which is another movie that i think uses just wonderful symbolism through trains it's slumdog millionaire best picture winner mm-hmm. just a, another wonderful romance and the 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 using the trains to transition from from period to period in his life is great too and i think there was a lot of lean influence there uh, yeah. with that movie so i couldn't help but but not think of that movie a little bit while watching this one that's good yeah i was i was thinking too um that maybe is another selling point we could even throw out you know really late into a spoiler laden discussion but um yeah looking at like people who would have been influenced by this and you know there was even like this overt one that with with us starting the movie at the end of the relationship and then going back at the end and revisiting the same moment at a different perspective now that we know what it's about that that's a a move the movie carol pulls I, i mean verbatim like it has to be just an overt homage um and carol is a great great movie that i love but i was thinking about that too and just what a great the the influence brief encounter has because it's such a similar story to you know this happenstance meeting between two people that defies social expectations this was another one i was thinking of for a double feature that i didn't go with so i wanted to mention you know how much of a brief encounter i see in carol but yeah i i think if you're gonna do like the the quote-unquote doomed romance or at least the romance that defies you know, social expectations and stuff. Like, I think you got to be influenced by Brief Encounter almost more than anything else. Yeah, and especially when we're talking about Danny Boyle, a you know, a, a British filmmaker. I'm sure yeah. David Lean is is in every single one of his textbooks. So, yeah, for sure. So we we are starting to push our time here. I feel I've been adequately able to make my three points. I wonder, is there anything else about this you wanted to talk about? I just had to uh, just the one last one for me was just calling out these wonderful, wonderful set designs. I mean. there's there's such a character in in themselves here whether it's the train station whether it's the walking across the bridge whether it's even her in in the fireplace in her apartment as she's kind of in in what would be her confessional It, it just there's there's so much charm to the set designs here i mean you brought up that beautiful beautiful train with the steam coming out in the beginning and just setting the tone for this whole thing the visuals in this movie just check absolutely every box, and uh, I uh, the the little cafe in there too, which is yeah. kind of where this movie is so brilliantly bookended it, from beginning to end. Um, yeah, just just uh, it's it's set design working as as good as you'll see it work in a movie. Yeah, I found myself I was kind of comforted every time we returned to the cafe and the train station. I, I I'm praising the movie. I think you know it 
adapts, you know, a stage play and really opens it up. And, you know, all those locations you'd mentioned do that. But uh, there was this kind of comfort of every time you'd go back and you'd see uh, Miss Baggett and Albert have their little tit a tat. You know, have you have kind of like the the broad strokes comedy that's mirroring the relationship. That's you know, it's it's fun. I enjoyed that. That was kind of like one of those sets that you look at and you're like, I'd like I'd like to visit that place. I know it's not real. I know it's a set on Pinewood Studios, but it would be great. You know, if some train station in England had recreated that, you could go have a cup of tea there. I think that would be fantastic. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I got to say, too, man, when Dolly comes back at the end oh what a moment i mean what just just a punch yeah. to the gut i mean i i that was so visceral i just felt it i absolutely felt it and just like you, that shot that you brought up before about her running out to potentially jump in front of the express train and and her reaction there another reaction that could have been so over the top but she makes it work and it, that got like a by seeing dolly it's like an, oh my god and then her doing the train oh my god you know i'm, I'm mm-hmm. verbally reacting as i'm watching it so yeah um, just great great stuff which is honestly like not what you expect. I, again, I think like you feel in the first one, you got it figured out. Like she ran off to have the wistful, you know, last look at the train and the steam would, you know, lit about her heels and you would have that image and you just really don't expect things to go that dark. I guess to drive it home, we started talking about, you know, lean as the director. I get why this is the one that put him on the map. And I, you know, I still have a lot of leans to watch. I've seen a few that come before this. I like them. I, I see the talent. I see the potential. I see the, the footprints in the sand that show he's, you know, he's going to be the director we know him as, but this is really the first one where it's like, it's all cylinders. It's just everything about it is like, you finally got it. Like you have everything down. You've, you've taken all your experience from the editing room. You've taken your experience doing a couple directorial jobs. Like this is where everything comes together. And it's, Again, it's it's everything. This is kind of the mark of great directing to me is like, do you know how to pull every single element of film together? And we praise performances. We've praised cinematography. We praise set design. Sound design is unbelievable. The, the whistles of the trains, the screeching, oh, yeah. the, the interior monologue, the lack of sounds is, I mean, it, that's that's almost as much a gut punch as, you know, the, the harsh train screeching sounds of um, Laura's suicide attempt is when Dolly is just prattling on and you just slowly hear her voice drowning out and you still can, you get that undercurrent of like, you know, it's still beating on. You just have this moment of respite while you're in Laura's head trying to drown this out. That's a moment to me that's almost distressful. And a lot of that is sound design. That's just, it's performance. You know, it's how the actress playing Dolly delivers the lines, but it's, it's everything, everything in this movie is directed to the ninth. It's amazing. Yeah, and I'm so glad you brought that up because it would have it would have crushed me if we got through this without bringing up the sound design because it is it is and you see him just use it again as as he'll he'll move into Bridge and the River Kwai and 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 Lawrence Arabia because those are key components of those movies too. But just that little train whistle and it's just again just that little reminder that that this that this thing is out there for her and it's the clock is ticking away and her reactions to hearing that you know she almost jolts every time that train whistle comes. Mm-hmm. Really, really brilliant stuff. It's um. Again, it's my second watch. I, I feel, you know, there'll be so much more to appreciate on a deeper level. You know, fans will tweet us out, you know, what about this? What about this? And I'm going to have so much to learn with this movie. But to, to wrap up my thoughts again, just this, this is a great lean movie to me because it shows what he can do outside of what we associate him with outside of the big epicness it's to show he just he's got the chops and he can do it. And to me, to me, it almost seems like an outlier because. To me, this is maybe one of the few small, quote unquote, small movies he's done. Because even after this, 
he's still doing a lot of character. He takes on a lot of Dickens things. He does great expectations. Mm-hmm. He does Oliver Twist. But even that, it, it feels ambitious to me because how can you uh, adapt Charles Dickens and not have that come off as like very ambitious and epic in its own way? And again, to make to decidedly make this movie like it's going to be 85 minutes, primarily about these two people. It's just about this blossoming romance. A lot of the relationship is spoken through subtext. It's a movie about restraint. It's not about you know, the passionate kissing scenes or anything like that. It's, it's about social constrictions and how people navigate those. And to have that work, to have that be engrossing and not just to have me be like, well, I'm a movie fan, so I'm saying it's engrossing, but to have that be a movie that, you know, literally everybody I've talked to this week has been like, oh yeah, great movie. I love, I love Brief Encounter. Yeah. This is a special, special place in Dean's filmography for me. And I'm really glad we got to talk about it. Absolutely. And there's always something to be said about making a rewatchable film, too. And that's what this is. This is a movie you can you can watch again and again and and pick up something different or just enjoy what you loved from the first time. For sure. This this has me very stoked to get that um, David Lean directional coward box set that Criterion did. This is kind of the crown jewel of it. Um, Seen a couple of other movies in it. They're they're good. They're good enough for me to want the box. But yeah, this is a this is a seller for sure. This will get you get you hooked. Well, before we wrap up the conversation, though, you've you've te- we both teased at it. We got some double features to recommend. I have not gone with Carol. You have not gone with Slumdog Millionaire. But if you were having a movie night and uh, you know eighty five minutes, you've got a lot of room to pad this out. What else would you put in a double feature with Brief Encounter? As I mentioned uh, to start, David Lean is one of my favorite directors. So I went with a movie from another one of my favorite directors, which is thematically well in line with this, and it is a um, a Clint Eastwood movie. Uh, starring Clint Eastwood himself and and Meryl Streep, and it's uh, The Bridges of Madison County. Okay, sell me on this because I still haven't seen it. Oh, great. Okay, and that's another reason why I wanted to recommend it, because I think that this is a movie that a lot of people haven't seen, just because it kind of sounds like that sort of movie, yeah, I don't want to see. Um, but it's, it is just a, a wonderful movie that is just exquisitely directed. And it's right after Unforgiven. So he wins the Oscar for Unforgiven, and this is the next place he goes. And boy, if you ever doubted Meryl Streep, her performance in this is every, every single syllable you'll ever need to understand how, why people consider her one of the greatest actresses who've ever lived. Mm. I, I personally think it may be her best performance, at least from what I've seen. And I know that's a big statement, um, but we get a lot of the same things that we get in Brief Encounter. And as another one that's probably influenced uh, both both the author who wrote the novel and and Clint as he directed this one. But you have a um, you know you have a a housewife whose husband goes away in business and the the kids go away and she happens to stumble upon a, a photographer and and a lot of some of the similar things we see in Brief Encounter ensue. And it's really it's really explored through wonderful, wonderful cinematography, great writing, and just you know killer camera work too. So I, I think it's one of those Clint Eastwood movies that a lot of people have skipped or haven't seen, and I cannot recommend it enough, especially if you enjoyed your brief encounter. I'm in, I, and I like the the connection here. Something we've kind of left unspoken is. You know, David Lean's a guy. He's got a couple of the man's man's movies. You know, like Lawrence of Arabia and. I, I think Parks and Rec even has the joke that Ron Swanson makes, like there's two acceptable movies to cry in. It's it's the Dirty Dozen and Bridge on the River Kwai or something like that. You know, these, <laughs> these are the man's man's movies. And then here we're like, oh yeah, that, that guy who made Lawrence of Arabia and Bridge on the River Kwai also made this you know, romance movie. And, he, and here, you know, kind of the same thing, like Clint Eastwood, oh hell yeah, you know, Outlaw Josie Wales and Unforgiven. Bridge of Madison County, all right, cool. 
I'm in. I love Meryl Streep. I already didn't need any impetus to hail her as one of the greats. And this is a big blind spot for me. So I'm definitely gonna have to check this out. Yeah, I don't think it's one you regret. I think it's uh, it it really will it, it really will leave you leave you pretty satisfied. All right, cool. Well, mine. I'm gonna, I'm gonna take a cue from you. I have two options here for double features, so I'm going to uh, use your all time great directors kind of thread here. I'm gonna go with more thematic theming here, and I'm maybe use this to sell my film noir connection too. My double feature recommendation. It is a movie we've covered on the show. A film I've actually seen a trusted, but I enjoy it. I enjoy it a lot. It is Alfred Hitchcock, Strangers on a Train. Also about um, uh, two people whose lives are thrown into disarray because of a chance encounter that revolves around a train and is also revolved around um, indecent compulsions in, in Strangers on a Train's case, much more illegal things, things like murder. It's not just, you know, innocent or um, you know, romantic adultery. There's there's a bit of a dichotomy here. We've We've just said, you know, David Lean directs the crap out of brief encounter he's got he's mastered everything everything is under his control on our strangers on a train episode i said strangers on a train gets away from hitchcock it's it's a little too ambitious he doesn't quite keep a lid on everything but i do enjoy it a lot and again some of the connections i was making stylistically i think you can see in strangers on a train kind of pulling some film noir stuff together you'll see those kind of popping up in brief encounter but with a much more welcoming romantic angle um, but there's even kind of a romantic angle to Strangers on a Train. It's a movie kind of famously that has these very thick homoerotic undertones that are just great, um, as portrayed by the character of Bruno, who's fantastic in the movie. If you ever, if you need a reason to watch it, that character alone is worth it. So I'm going with Strangers on a Train for this one. Excellent choice. Excellent choice for sure. Uh, was one of my mom's favorite movies. And, you know, if you want to talk about uh, a director who, gets how to make rewatchable movies. Hitchcock totally nails that. And um, I, I think you can't go wrong if you're picking any of uh, any of Hitchcock's highlights. But I, I love Strangers on a Train. And one I, I'm definitely due for a rewatch of because it's been a, a couple years and um, I look forward to doing that soon. Ironically, you can go wrong with a few Hitchcocks if they are based on a Noel Coward play, much like Brief Encounter is. Uh, there's a Hitchcock movie called Easy Virtue that I absolutely despise. And it is a very early <laughs> unseen one of his. but. Uh... Yeah, David Lean. I guess when you put, David the, Lean I, yeah, I guess when you, couldn't. Right, that's right. I guess when you put that much content out, I guess you're going to have some misses. It's, and you can yeah, it's, wrong a little bit. So. It's true. They can't all be bangers, but oh, when they are, oh my goodness. Yes. Um, yeah, Hitchcock and Lean. What a great double feature! So I am definitely checking out Bridges of Madison County, and as always, I'm just going to be stoked on Thursday to see what people would throw into a double feature. This gives me so many good ideas i really got to start whittling my watch list down because it just keeps growing and growing with these double feature recommendations but i'm not stopping it's too fun of a game to play so kieran i think that'll about wrap it up for us man i again thank you so much not only for taking the assignment to take one of these directors we haven't discussed thank you for picking david lean and thank you for picking this david lean um i think it was a fantastic place to start and i I wish you luck as you do the Bridge on the River Quiet episode. It's a freaking great movie, and I'm really excited to hear your guys' thoughts on it. Thanks, man, and thanks for you know inviting me on. I, I can't tell you how happy I am that I watched this movie and that this movie is a part of my life now. And I'm you know I'm kicking myself for not doing it sooner. But like any like like any time you do that, you're happy that you got here and you watched it. So anytime you want me on, I'm, I'm always down. You want to just thumb through the book and point to a random movie and call me in? I'm I'm down. So. <laughs> Just yeah. uh, just let me know. It's always a blast. It's a done deal. You're always welcome here, man. Um, thank you so much for lending us your talents. One more time, where can people find the Best Picture cast? 
Sure, it's, it's Best Picture Cast. We're at Best Picture Cast anywhere you get your podcasts, anywhere you're uh, going to gonna check out your socials. So at Best Picture Cast on socials, just type Best Picture Cast on any of your platforms, and you will find us. And we'll be uh, always always looking for a new a new listener out there. All right. Can't recommend it enough, guys. Great conversations. Fun games. You get to pick the MVP, the LVP. You get to score the movies, and you get to follow along with your rankings. So there's a ton of fan input if you're following Best Picture Cast. So please do yourself a favor and get on that. And uh, speaking of fan interaction, thank you guys so much for listening. We've had our say. We're both super happy. We re- I revisited Brief Encounter. Kieran, you saw it for the first time. We're both over the moon we feel like you know we should have been watching this 20 times over by the time this point in our lives better late than never but um we don't have the ultimate say on where this movie is going to end up you are all the ones who will now decide if brief encounter is going to make the list of essential cinema so make sure you're following us at cinemas on whatever social media platform you're on because this friday you will make the decision is brief encounter a must-see movie thank you all so much for listening kieran thank you so much for hosting i'd love to have you back soon are there any final words you want to say before we get out of here? No, that's that's all. That's all. Check out the movie, and uh, I'm looking forward to, to seeing more of these classics that I haven't seen that'll be a part of my life in the future. All right. Well, man, this is where we part ways. My platform's over there. Is yours? Uh... I guess but I, I got to go, Mike. Got to catch my train. Okay. Well, cheerio. Ta-ta. Ta-ta. <laughs>